0: You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Yonatan Grad, the Melvin J. and Geraldine L. Glimsher Assistant Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, May 7th. Hello,
1: everyone. Um, One of the things I wanted to uh, mention is um, a preprint that my colleagues uh, Daniel Larimore and Kate Bubar from Colorado, uh, just posted earlier today. I'm just going to put it into the chat. Uh, there's a link up there um, in which, uh, and in this uh, short letter, we uh, think about the impact of uh, test characteristics and population seroprevalence on the uh, immune passport idea. Uh, and basically, the the question we were interested in here was um, you know, when, when you have an imperfect test, uh, something that doesn't have perfect specificity, there will be a false positive rate. Uh, and that has implications for the immune passport strategy for opening up the economy in a couple of ways. First, uh, people who uh, um, are false positives will enter into the population assuming that they are Uh, immune, and then if they get infected, uh, um, they will wonder what's going on. How is it that uh, someone who was supposedly immune could get infected again? And so this really can set up some kind of tension since there is so much concern right now around whether immunity actually, or or, uh, evidence of antibodies indicates any, uh, indicates immunity. It can really uh, make more problematic um, that situation. Uh, and then secondarily, again, assuming that serological positivity does correlate with, with immunity, um, the false positive rate um, is is dependent on the, the overall prevalence. So um, <clears throat> given an imperfect specificity, when you have low prevalence, the positive predictive value for the test is also low. And uh, it could be that, in fact, given Uh, sensitivity and specificity characteristics for the test, you could be in a situation where, um, uh, if those are poor enough, um, you're actually introducing into the population people who you think are positive, but enough of them are actually negative uh, that you could be below the herd immunity threshold. So um, there's an importance in thinking about uh, seroprevalence as well as getting tests that are as good as possible uh, um, when, if you want to pursue the uh, immune passport strategy. So um, again, there's a link to the preprint that goes through uh, in more detail, and I think probably more eloquently, uh, the brief summary that I tried to provide just now. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to uh, handle questions on uh, those uh, items that, that Nicole mentioned, and uh, if there are other things that I can address, I'm happy to give those a shot too.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, first question.
2: I'm asking I may not be able to answer, but um, I'm interested in finding out how important it is to know about testing testing rates by all areas like a city or town or a zip code. How important is that in terms of reopening, in terms of focusing your efforts on dealing with the pandemic? Right now in Massachusetts you have Total tests by state. We do not have any data on total tests by anything below the geography of, it, of the state.
1: Uh, broadly speaking, I think um, having, uh, OK, so, so we need testing for a couple of reasons. First, we need virologic testing, uh, or basically testing to see if people are infected to help us uh, Uh, understand where we are on the curve. And also to aid in that, we need serologic testing, testing that informs on uh, what fraction of the population has been infected. Uh, So a combination of both serologic and virologic testing. When we talk about testing, we need both things, just to be clear about about that. Now, uh, we need it, to to monitor not only where we have been but where we are and the responses to different types of interventions. So when we start lifting uh, the broad lockdown, for example, what happens? We need to be able to monitor. How much does it matter uh, what that testing at a state level or a local level Um, That gets to uh, something that I think is is quite important about this pandemic, and that is the pandemic is actually made up of very local epidemics. Uh, It isn't one curve, uh, um, or at least we shouldn't really think about it as just one curve for the world, or for our country, or even for a state. I think it's important in terms of tailoring our responses uh, to understand what the local trajectory is. We see that in Boston um, with evidence of what's going on in Chelsea. So, uh, there was one study uh, so far, and I know more are underway, uh, that did, um, I think it was really a pilot study, but it it showed uh, uh, something like 30% roughly uh, uh, of the people tested in Chelsea showed evidence of past infection. So, this is one of those serological studies that looked at uh, antibodies. Um, um, to SARS-CoV-2, that is a high rate uh, um, compared to what we believe is going on in many other communities uh, across Massachusetts. So um, understanding um, the local prevalence, and so in other words, how many people have the disease locally, I think is is quite important. So uh, testing to monitor at a local level Um, I think is going to be needed to help to tailor the responses uh, and not only evaluate how current uh, approaches to opening the economy go, but when we need to reintroduce social distancing um, or other types of mitigation efforts, can we do a better job of tailoring uh, those those interventions to the most at-risk regions? Uh, So rather than having a blanket Uh, uh, um, statewide lockdown, would there be um, an improved strategy by having higher resolution, more granular understanding communities or even which neighborhoods? So to to that, so getting back to the the question, I would say uh, it would certainly be helpful to be able to understand through testing at local levels uh, um what's going on and what is and to be able to monitor and then tailor our responses.
2: It wasn't exact question, but um but I understand I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I guess my question was how do you know what the prevalence of testing itself is at a local in other oh, words, how do you know uh how do you know that you're not you some oh oh, oh states uh, that have that that um, information and they report it. Some states report it by county. Some yes. states report a zip code. But Massachusetts not. Re- think, from uh, what I'm gathering from right, I, I can't. I it. can't.
1: I can't speak to what the what the uh, state is is doing in terms of reporting. That's that's for the state to describe. I can tell you it's important to know and would be helpful, uh, but I can't tell you what's guiding their decisions about. So the overall
2: prevalence of testing is important. And people in a community are actually getting
1: tested. I think monitoring at a community level is important, yes. Okay.
2: thank you very much. I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) You're welcome.
0: (laughs) Next question. Thanks for taking my question. Um, This week, President Trump was asked whether workers returning to their jobs could get testing, both antibody and viral testing. And he responded, they should have no problem. Um, so my question is, can everyday workers get these tests now, particularly the antibody test? Um, I know it's one of the focus of this call. And if so, how does that work? What would they need to do to get an antibody test? And if not, will we see this happen, where workers returning to work can go get that test, and when?
1: Uh, I, I think, um... The the answer to the first part of your question uh, can people can anyone get tested? The answer is quite clearly no. Uh, I don't think that there's um, that we have the testing capacity either virologic or serologic to test everyone. Just doesn't exist yet. Uh, I know many places are working to ramp it up, but it has been uh, it has been quite difficult. Secondly, on the serologic testing, uh, there are still, there are many tests out there of unclear um, sensitivity and specificity. Uh, There are many, um, many people are working to characterize these uh, tests that are out on the market um, and see how well they perform. Um, And there are other people who are trying to uh, make available, essentially homebrew tests, or, or trying to take the, the type of ELISA assay that was developed by Florian Kramer uh, at Mount Sinai and develop uh, their own version uh, and, and try to use robots and other types of methods to, uh, to expand capacity. Um, So there's there's a huge amount of effort right now going into both trying to validate the tests that are flooding the market and trying to develop new ones. They say flooding the market, Uh, but in fact the the test availability really isn't that high yet. So we don't yet have the capacity to offer uh, broadly uh, either virologic or serologic testing. Will it happen? Um, I certainly hope so. Uh, And again, I know many people are working hard at trying to scale up this kind of testing, but um, it's essentially trying to create an infrastructure uh, uh, very, very rapidly where one, uh, for this test in particular, hasn't really existed. So, um, and and I think it will be extremely important um, to look, uh, uh, to to use these tests and to look broadly at the population, but, but we just don't have the testing yet.
0: Okay, just a quick follow-up, I mean, any sense of how long it might take to get to the point where we have that kind of broad level of testing, or, or do we just don't know yet? Uh,
1: I We don't know yet, uh, because, you know, it, it depends on a uh, wide variety of factors, um, you know, in, in the same way that it has been very hard to uh, predict the extent to which virologic testing is uh, um, can be can scaled up, right? I, I don't know that people would have anticipated we'd hit this plateau in the same way. So it's, it's very hard for me to predict what the timeline will be.
3: Next question. Uh, hi, Dr. Brett. Um, so I, I have two questions. Uh, first is uh, about the reopening policy. Uh, after the reopening, it's, uh, it's very important for the federal and state government to uh, monitor the data uh, and be ready to reintroduce new measures, if needed. Um, um, but uh, my, my question is, uh, what's the trigger of re- restricting? Uh, do we need a criteria or system uh, for the whole country that uh, when we should be uh, re-locked down or uh, any new policy?
1: Uh, OK, so, so you had mentioned two questions, but that sounded like one question. Was that just a <laughs> follow-up with the second one? Uh, sorry? You, you asked one question, but you introduced yourself by saying that you would have two
3: questions. Uh, 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 yeah, um, I wonder if I could uh, ma- mention a second question after this?
1: OK, no problem.
3: Okay, thank you. So the,
1: the, the first question, this question about uh, what is the trigger for reintroducing uh, um, mitigation efforts? So as we start to lift uh, social distancing and other uh, interventions that we should expect to see uh, a resurgence in cases. Um, this is the, the math of epidemics. Uh, that as there are susceptible people uh, available, if we have not hit herd immunity, uh, we would expect to see uh, a, a rise in cases. So. Uh, to the point of what is the trigger, uh, once we start to see this rise, of reinstituting interventions and then what type of intervention? I'll extend the question and say, what type of interventions? You know, What's the expectation for how those interventions will work? I think that's an extremely important question and one that I have not seen well addressed. Uh, and I, I think, you know, what we'll need to consider in developing the strategies for response to a resurgence includes a better understanding of how successful the strategies we've used so far have been. Uh, Can we tailor those interventions uh, as we spoke about earlier on the call, instead of um, using blanket kind of blunt instrument Uh, uh, across a whole geographic region or a whole state? Can we tailor the response particularly to those communities where we're seeing uh, a a rise in cases? Uh, Can we use more refined measures? Can we combine social distancing of uh, um, varying with um, contact tracing, as well as quarantine and isolation. All of these, you know trying to figure out how to balance the types of interventions that we have available to us um, with the context in which we're seeing a resurgence is going to be critical. Uh, and yes, having um, uh, extensive testing, to pick up on another point already mentioned on the call, is, um, is, is necessary to really be able to monitor uh, for the resurgence to um, be able to uh, then um, institute uh, um, uh, and, uh, um, you know, have a trigger um, that will prompt us to, to reinstitute um, some type of mitigation. So, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen many people describe what those triggers will be, uh, but I absolutely agree um, that uh, um, it will be important to, to have a strategy uh, for when we start to see a resurgence.
3: Well, thank you. Uh, thanks a lot. And the, my, uh, my second question is, is not related to today's topic. It's about uh, epidemic models. Uh, that uh, we always need to report different kinds of models and they have different results. So um, what factors should we focus on when reporting and reviewing these models? Or in other words, how can we see a model is, is accurate, is useful or not?
1: Uh, I think there, um, there has been a, a fair amount of discussion about, about models and where models are, are useful and, and how to think about models. And uh, that, that could be <laughs> an entire course, uh, um, uh, not even an hour-long discussion or even a short answer. So um, I, I may refer you to, to some recent uh, discussions about um, the utility and interpretation of models rather than try to uh, try to tackle that one on my own. Um, other, other than to say, uh, um, it's important to keep in mind that, that models in, uh, um, for, for epidemics are, are, uh, intended to be projections to help inform, uh, thinking and decision-making. Um, they aren't intended to be forecasts in the same way as you would forecast the weather, right? uh, With with a a weather forecast trying to anticipate, uh, for example, when and where a hurricane might hit, right? There's little that we do to change uh, those parameters, meaning um, the hurricane does not respond to our actions. For all of our modeling efforts, it's really important to keep in mind that they are uh, these models and the projections from these models are dependent on what we do. Right? So uh, um, they, they aren't so much forecasts of what will happen. They should be viewed as as tools to help inform our intuition for what might happen under different conditions or different types of
3: interventions. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay, great. Uh,
0: next question. I also have a couple of questions. The first is the one that I sent over about, so New York City is seeing, it looks like two thirds of their new admissions to hospitals are people who say that they were shut in, that they were staying home, and nonetheless, there they are. In Massachusetts, we're recently seeing an uptick, actually just a day or two, but do you have any explanation for what's going on?
1: So um, I I haven't seen those data. I did see your question just before uh, coming on this call, um, but I I haven't seen the report. So I can't speak to the specifics of that report. But what I can say is that um, household transmission uh, is, um, you know, going to be the way in which transmission takes place when most people are at home and there isn't opportunity for community transmission. Um, So... How does that happen? Well, it's not that the virus is coming in through the walls. It's almost certainly the case that it's uh, um, from other members of the household who may not be shut in, right? So uh, from other people who are still out in the community. What I'd be curious about is um, uh, in you know, what communities are we seeing uh, cases appear, uh, and what is the structure of the households in which these people are presenting with infections uh, are coming from. So if it's the case that uh, you know they're from communities with uh, high prevalence and um, from households where there are still members of those households who are working or going out because they're you know uh, essential workers or uh, um, you know have other responsibilities that take them outside of the, the house then it could be the case that people are, that this is just evidence of households transmission. Uh, And um, uh, even the people who are trying to stay at home are getting exposed by other people who are in their homes or in their buildings. So uh, I think it's going to be important to look at um, uh, what the household density and structure are in those communities where we're seeing households transmission. And to what extent do we still see that people in those communities or in those households or buildings um, are, are still mobile, are still going out of the house. Um, so you know, to, to the point that um, risk, uh, risk of infection has to do with um, not just uh, um, what you're doing, but what the people around you are doing.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense, thank you. And my other question is about serologic testing. There are quite a few uh, serological tests that are being offered to consumers now. Um, and there are certainly quite a few consumers who, you know, felt crappy two <laughs> months ago or, or one month ago or three months ago, and uh, would be interested probably in buying them. What would be your advice to people who are considering at the individual consumer level uh, getting serologic testing and um, and possibly even businesses, too, I would imagine? What, what, what would you say to those people?
1: Uh, I... I... Right now, I would say um, wait until you have good confidence in your test. Uh, I think that there are many tests out there that would fall in that category that I was describing earlier of being of not high enough specificity, such that in particularly in communities where there's low prevalence, the false positive rate um, is going to be high. Right, so they would have low positive value, and Additionally, um, we still don't know the extent to which um, antibodies, evidence of exposure to SARS-CoV-2 um, indicates immunity, right? So one of the reasons why people are so enthusiastic, I think, uh, in, um, in, in taking these tests is the hope that it would indicate that they are uh, immune-privileged, right? That they have had the infection and now they're immune and they can re-enter the communities. But we don't, well, while it's likely the case, we don't know that for sure, uh, and um, uh, because there are false positive rates uh, for these tests, I would hesitate uh, to trust the information uh, and to act on it. So, um, uh, so I think it behooves people um, to understand that these, that many of the tests out there uh, um, are uh, not great tests. Um, there was a New York Times piece on this, actually, of work done um, by a lab at Mass General and a lab uh, at uh, University of California, San Francisco, or UCSF, uh, looking at a variety of these tests and showing that many of them had poor test characteristics, so uh, not only are is there an issue with the tests themselves, but there is an issue with the interpretation um, that I would um, caution people uh, about.
0: So then, quick follow up. So then, the the idea of immune passports is actually premature, very premature at this point. Then?
1: Yes, I, I would say so, and and there are a number of other uh, um, even social concerns uh, around using immune passports. And I would point you to a very nice piece in the land written by uh, Alexandra Phelan, P-H-E-L-A-N, uh, recently um, on uh, a number of the concerns around um, uh, immune passports. And then I think we we cited, um, I, I put up in the, the chat Uh, a link to the preprint that we posted, I think it was yesterday, Um, uh, but it has uh, a number of references to these issues in there as well. Um, So, but I think, you know, immune passports are a little, are are premature uh, and are problematic for a variety of reasons, both from the test side, and then also from the uh, more ethics and uh, sociology.
0: Thank you. Next question. So
1: could you comment on how the antibody tests so far, aside from being not perfectly accurate, um, are essentially binary? In in other words, don't we really need to know how many neutralizing antibodies someone has? And and then I guess secondarily, isn't it also true that antibodies aren't necessarily the whole story? Like how much are killer T cells likely to be part of the necessary immune response? Right, so there are... um... Uh, a couple of factors here. So so immune responses are dynamic. So uh, um, they take time to appear. Uh, and then over time, uh, they wane. So uh, we know this from a variety of other infections. And it is the case here uh, as well. So there was, uh, recently some work um, uh, by Florian Kramer and his group at Mount Sinai, um, where uh, I believe they they had a, uh, a preprint on Med Archive that came out earlier this week uh, on on this topic, where they followed people um, after uh, their diagnosis, so they're they're known by the virus test to have been infected, and then they look to see what happened over time, and uh, um, they're. So, so we see that uh, to, to your point about um, you know binary and not binary, many of the lateral flow assays, mm-hmm. the kinds of tests that are basically like pregnancy tests, uh, um, you know, do you, is does the, does the does the line appear or does it not uh, are interpreted as binary. You know, and I think those are perhaps best understood as indicating whether you have exposure. Um, uh, what we can say is that over time, those will, you know, the, the likelihood goes up, right? So, um, your, uh, the immunoglobulins, the antibodies themselves, um, will increase over time. And that's what Florian and his crew showed. And what, again, we know from other types of infections. Um, so, the longer you wait after an infection and recovery, uh, the more likely you're going to see oh, wait. a positive signal. Basically, the longer you wait after an infection and recovery, the more likely you'll see the antibodies. Right, they'll be they'll grow, right in, in con- or they'll increase in concentration. So it'll be more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so we see that, right? Uh, and that's something that that Florian and his crew showed uh, for SARS-CoV two as well. Um, so getting to your question about neutralizing antibodies and the type of immune response, finding the immune correlates of protection. Uh, I think is is always uh, you know that it's it's a, a challenge for any type of infection in trying to say you know do you have enough antibodies uh, um, to to generate an immune response that mm-hmm. that again is um, binarizing what is probably uh, a uh, um, uh, non-binary relationship. So <laughs> for for other. Um, for other types of infections, you know, it's, you can imagine that the amount of virus that people are exposed to will vary, right? So, um, uh, you know, that's the, the immune response, uh, um, or the the extent to which um, you can be protected may be related to the amount uh, of, um, the pathogen that you're exposed to. So given some low amounts, perhaps, you know, your immune response can protect you, but given a very high exposure, uh, perhaps the immune response would be overwhelmed, right? So there is probably mm-hmm. some relationship there uh, um, for, uh, for most pathogens uh, and, and SARS-CoV-2 uh, as well. So uh, uh, this gets to, you know, while, while we try to draw a line and say, above some number you're protected, below some number you're at risk, Uh, It probably is the case that that's a simplification as well. It's often a useful one, uh, you know, because it may be the case that the uh, exposure tends to be of a particular amount, right? So if you know that uh, the amount of virus you get exposed to is within some amount, some concentration, uh, then having an idea of uh, um, this Uh, uh, the relationship between protection and not protection um, will be useful. But if the amount of virus you get exposed to varies widely, uh, then it may be harder to infer correlates of protection. Okay, but so is there any evidence yet that perhaps neutralizing antibodies are perhaps uh, only part of the story and that we really need you know, the so-called cellular T cell response be part of it? I mean, I know that differs with different viruses, like how much each one is important. Yeah, I, I haven't seen... I, I don't I don't know that people have really characterized what an effective immune response uh, that clears the infection, like what exactly is necessary. Uh, so I, I haven't... Okay. I, I don't know. I haven't seen that okay. really characterizes the what... Uh, Um, what a a fully effective immune response or an effective immune response looks like yet. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, next question, Michael Brush from MarketWatch.
4: Hey, thanks for doing this. Um, I've got to wonder though, wouldn't it be a near certainty that you get immunity since that's normally the case? I mean, can you cite viruses where it's not the case? Are there many of them? And secondly, and I have a follow up after this, Secondly, if we don't get immune from the exposure to the virus, then how on earth could a vaccine help, which is kind of a modified version of exposure to the virus? I mean, why do we even have any hope for that?
1: Right. So, so, uh, I think there, it is, it is certainly the case that we expect that people who recover do so because they mount an effective immune response uh and um so i would say at least in the short term the expectation is that people will be will have some measure of protection it is not clear whether many of these antibody tests are really measuring neutralizing antibodies so we don't know uh um how much protection they'll you know we should expect people to have on the basis of many of these tests yet Uh, similarly we don't know how long uh, or how, how good that immune response is. So um, for example, uh, um, in uh, one of the alpha coronaviruses, uh, um, one of the seasonal coronaviruses that causes common cold-like symptoms, uh, there was a study um, in military recruits, uh, as I recall, where they basically got infected and then were challenged with the same strain a year later, and many of them were able to be infected again. Right? So it is uh, so, so it, it suggests that at least in those cases uh, the duration of protection from whatever response was generated was fairly short lasting. For other infections we know that the immune response generated is quite long you know for, for measles, uh, for example, we think that it is uh, um, lifelong or nearly lifelong. Um, so, uh, yes, I think it, it varies by virus, uh, and for some of the other viruses in the coronavirus family, it can be apparently short. Um, so I, I think that's one of the concerns. For a vaccine, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, you know, the ability to, to come up with a vaccine that generates that, that we believe would generate um, a, a, uh, an immune response, um, you know, if you can't come up with uh, an immune response to, uh, and uh, the infection itself, how it absolutely raises the question. Um, you know, can can a vaccine do it? Uh, and here I'm getting into territory that I am not an expert in. I'm not a vaccinologist or an immunologist uh, uh, at that level to, to be able to say whether any of the new vaccine strategies uh, offers promise and whether you know it, to to, to to this point specifically, and, and if for some vaccines you can actually generate a stronger immune response than might happen with natural infection. That's out of my realm of expertise, uh, but, but I think the, the question is an important one, right? So what is the extent of protection? Um, I'll, I'll add another question to yours. Uh, how much does the, the variation in symptoms Uh, correlate with uh, variation in extent or duration of immune protection. How much do we need to worry that people who are asymptomatically infected uh, may develop a mild immune response, Uh, so uh, enough to clear perhaps their infection, but again, not generating uh, a response that is long-lasting or particularly strong? I think that's unanswered, uh, um, but one that Um, that that I I worry about. Um, So I think there are still many questions around immunity that remain uh, to be addressed. Okay,
4: so it's complicated. Um, (laughs) In
1: in a word, yes.
4: So you sort of answered this before, but I want to ask again, um, for those of us who had a terrible flu experience, and I think everybody else as well, um, when do you think there'll be a kind of fairly simple like -like, HIV-like finger prick tests that'll tell us, uh, it doesn't have to be right away, but you know, because right now, the best one seems to require a blood draw and there's no way in the world I'm going anywhere near a phlebotomist or a hospital at this moment. But uh, like an HIV type test, when will, like, an easy one, when will that be available?
1: Right, so I think there are some tests uh, um, that have been demonstrated in principle and in pilot studies to be good uh, from just using a finger prick. Uh, and many of these lateral flow assays that I was mentioning before um, uh, are based on just a drop of blood. So really, just you know, using a a lancet, uh, one of these little the, what you see people sure. use it for for uh, um, checking their blood sugar, for example. Um, and uh, um, so so those tests exist, and they are there are some that appear to be quite good, and there are others that are not as good. Um, I know it is a people are working very hard on making these widely available. Uh, They aren't yet, um, uh, but the technology platforms exist uh, and uh, uh, they're they're starting to be used in serological studies of communities. So for example, the study that I mentioned earlier of Chelsea uh, here uh, in the Boston area, um, uh, run by a group at Massachusetts General Hospital, used a lateral flow assay and they had characterized the test characteristics uh, for that assay, basically showing that it worked really well, um, well enough that they could believe the the, the answers with a, a fair degree of confidence. So, uh, and that was just that is based on just uh, essentially a drop of blood from a fingerprint. So that so um, that the technology platforms exist, but they aren't yet available at the scale that we need. Great, thank you.
0: And I'm gonna ask a quick question myself here. So you were talking about uh, immunity uh, to certain viruses and that you can have lifelong or very long lasting immunity against measles, but not so much against other viruses such as some coronaviruses. What is the difference between those viruses and what causes the different immune response length? How long that lasts? Uh,
1: You know, everyone wishes they had a good answer to that. Uh, (laughs) Okay. It's, it's a it's a great question uh, and um, one um, that that uh, is is not not clear. If we knew an answer to that, I think we'd be able to come up with uh, you know better vaccines uh, across the board. Right, you wouldn't need to get a booster shot for your tetanus and diphtheria for or pertussis, for example. Right? you know we're supposed to get uh, or Tdap. Uh, uh, updated every 10 years, or Maybe we wouldn't need to, if we really knew an answer to that question and could generate with uh, vaccines a a very long lasting immunity. So uh, yeah, great question. Um, Still uh, a very active topic of research.
0: Okay, so it's not that the viruses themselves are or whatever the pathogen itself is mutating and that's why the v- vaccines are no longer working. It's something else about the immune system response.
1: Okay, so, so that gets to another point. So yes, uh, um, so some, some viruses do change antigenically uh, and so uh, an immune response to, uh, to um, one strain may not provide uh, as the same level of immunity uh, or potentially even any immunity to another strain. Um, so um, with influenza, for example, we know there is both antigenic what are terms of antigenic drift and antigenic shift. So uh, uh, where um, new flu strains are emerging regularly, uh, and those are evolving in response to population immunity. So they're, they're uh, basically uh, it, the selective pressure, uh, from the immune system is actually driving their, their evolution um, uh, to escape immune pressure. So um, it, it can also depend on the virus and uh, uh, its adapt- adaptation to immune pressure.
0: Great, thank you. Um, next question.
5: Hello, hi. So, um, so I have a couple of rest- retrospective questions. Um, I will ask uh, one after the other. Um, so, um, and they said that, um, the um, immunity, immunity, immune response is uh, different depending on the strain on the coronavirus But I was wondering, uh, whether it would have been possible through conducting, uh, intensive research to use, uh, uh the, um, the, uh, the previous uh, SARS-CoV outbreak, uh, 2002, 2003, um, and uh, basically studying the immune, uh, immune, uh, immune response of, of those who survived the, the outbreak to kind of uh, create um, um, serological uh, uh, tests uh, that could have uh, some chance to work uh, uh, in the face of the different kind of uh, wide variety of, um, of coronavirus strains. A, and uh, it could it be also possible to basically to develop also uh, um, <clears throat> detection uh, viral tests that could also potentially uh, be used to, for, yeah, to detect and to make the diagnostics on any coronavirus. Of course, uh, that would be very difficult to, to, to find the right uh, viral uh, test and uh, serological test, but at least having something already made to avoid uh, basically ma- making all- so many efforts on the pandemic and have something uh, prepared to-, to build on or is it uh, <clears throat> kind of science fiction question that's the first question
1: okay so so just to, to tackle that one quickly so uh, a couple of points about um, the prior uh, prior um, uh, so SARS cov one. Um, and uh, some things that we knew about it. So um, there are a couple of interesting things. So first, the immune response, uh, at least in terms of the antibody titers for SARS-CoV-1, people were monitored after their exposure and recovery. Uh, and you know, I've mentioned that for the alpha coronavirus, you know, it seemed like immunity uh, um, by challenge study at least was, was uh, could could um, last only you know uh, under a year. At least by looking at the antibody levels, we saw that those waned um, uh, for uh, um, SARS-CoV-1 after around three years. So it it wasn't, you know, the the antibody levels themselves uh, were not necessarily extremely long-lasting on average. So so there's some information there. Another interesting thing is about cross-reactivity. So it seems like uh, people who had some of the common cold-associated coronaviruses, uh, their antibodies wouldn't uh, really protect against SARS-CoV-1 infection. But the other way around seemed to be the case, where people who, were, who had SARS-CoV-1, their antibodies would actually protect against infection with the common cold coronaviruses. Right? So the relationship of immunity was, was not uh, uh, it, it was not an equal one. Um, so, and and we don't know what the situation will be with SARS-CoV-2, uh, but it's a super interesting question. For serologic tests, you know, as we were saying, you know, trying to imagine could we have developed a test for all coronaviruses, uh, or that would capture all coronaviruses, I think uh, e- even before Um, the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, I I think that's quite difficult because we don't know what the immune response would be, we don't know what it would look like, and the point, one of the challenges with these serological tests is actually to distinguish among the responses to the different coronaviruses. Having one test for all coronaviruses isn't, isn't particularly useful because we expect most people Uh, Will have been exposed to the common cold coronaviruses, which circulate every year. So, what you'd really want is not a common test, but one that is specific to the particular pathogen of interest. Uh, And this, this, the cross reactivity um, of the the various diagnostics is, in fact, exactly one of the issues. We worry that the diagnostics, like these lateral flow assays that I was mentioning before, um, that that their, their specificity uh, may be limited because perhaps they're finding antibodies that are to some of the common cold coronaviruses instead of uh, antibodies that are specific for SARS-CoV-2. So um, yeah, so that, that is my, my, <laughs> my answer to, your, to, the, to the science fiction question.
5: Yeah, the second question is a follow-up to what you said about the fact that uh, uh, some family members are infecting others because they're exposed to contag- contagion from their neighbors or people living in the same building. So uh, that's a very, I mean, it's a provocative question that that uh, is difficult to be answered, but maybe you can, you, can, you can give it a try. So I'm wondering to which extent uh, the lockdown measures, so basically confining many people at all without knowing who was infected, who was not, contributed to reduce the contagion or somehow to boost it. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't quite, quite catch the question,
1: could you, could you say it
5: again? Yeah, I was wondering, considering, uh, yeah, the premise of what you said before, I was wondering to which extent confining so many people in the same place, in the same space, the same building without knowing which, ah. which of them were contaminated, con- con- I mean, um, which, are, yeah. which were not contributed to actually reduce contagion or some, some, sometimes to, to increase it.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, that, that may, Have been right. So, so when people only interact at home, right, the only way for there to be spread is at home, right. But if people are also still interacting in the community and then also going home, then there's still opportunities for transmission in the community and then brought into the home. So, you know, a lockdown early on uh, where people really adhere to the lockdown um, may prevent uh, the the spread. Uh, in the, the community, and it would just be very limited spread of people who are infected and where you could see it in households. Right? And I think in Wuhan, we, we saw this as well, that that uh, after the lockdown, primarily, that whatever spread there was, was household spread for exactly that reason. The only people who are infected, they're not going out. The only people they could infect are people who are in their immediate vicinity, right? the people with whom they live. So that's, um, so uh, it, I think that the idea is that the, the, overall extent of spread would be dramatically reduced because you're limiting community uh, exposures uh, and you're really just uh, restricting the exposures um, uh, as much as possible. So, you know, ideally what you could do is uh, be able to identify uh, the people who are um, uh, either infected or at risk for being infected and have ways to isolate them um, at home uh, or have community resources and be able to, uh, help, um, remove them from the home, uh, of course, voluntarily and with full support, both, you know, keep them in some place in a hotel room or someplace where they would, uh, or some treatment facility if needed, where they would have support and also support the people, uh, you know, their families, um, uh, if, for example, it's a single-parent family, and the parent uh, is, uh, or it's a two-parent family, and the person infected is one of is the, the person who is working, right? I mean, you have to figure out how to support a community through something like that. Um, but yes, I think that the 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 notion is that you would have to identify the cases uh, and then uh, isolate them and, and quarantine uh, the people at risk, um, even within within households. So to try to to try to really diminish spread.
5: Yeah, sorry for so is that you talked about in the ideal uh, early uh, lockdown uh, situation mm-hmm. in the Western countries, uh, we experienced a, a late lockdown situation. So uh, that's why I was wondering whether the, the fact that the lockdown was adopted very lately, could have actually contributed to having a, a higher rate of infection. And now we have many infected people that were got infected just as a result of the lockdown, which are now uh, going back. Uh, to the street, to work, and it might infect other people. Um, right. I, I, I think that there,
1: there will be some degree of that. I don't know the, the, the numbers, but yes, there, you know, whenever you have an infectious person and you start lifting the mitigation efforts and they start interacting more broadly with the community, this is why we'll start to see uh, um, the cases go up. Uh, this is why we should expect to see a resurgence in virus, at least when there are enough susceptible people in a population. OK, thank you. Uh,
0: next question.
1: Yeah, my question. Uh, my questions are a little less technical, I think. Um, given all the symptoms and the possible symptoms and the emerging presumed maybe symptoms and so forth, curious from your perspective, how unusual Is this COVID-19 compared to other viral diseases? Uh, For many infections, we see a range of presentations from asymptomatic uh, infection to severe disease. We see it even with influenza. There are people with flu uh, who have very mild symptoms. And then we see people who die from influenza. So uh, it is not uncommon at all uh, to see a, a wide range of presentations, uh, meaning um, uh, from asymptomatic to severely symptomatic. Uh, okay, that I understand the range. What about the, the variety from you know, respiratory to digestive to potentially it sounds like neurological and even oh, yeah. skin conditions and... Viruses are so weird and wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I say that as someone who studies them uh, and admires their versatility. Let me give you an example. Um, polio is, uh, in, in, is an enterovirus. Uh, it actually, you know, it's something, you know, you, you may have uh, been vaccinated with, a, you know, an oral polio vaccine, that means you take it by mouth. But this, this and, and it comes from a virus family that infects the gut, right? The entero for, for enteric or, or gut. Um, but, but what do we worry about with polio? Polio can cause paralysis, right? So somehow this um, gut virus gets in and can actually infect neurons. Uh, and um, it can uh, then cause, cause paralysis and, and uh, um, you know it's just a, a crazy range for, for that virus. Um, another virus, herpes simplex virus. Um, so herpes can cause cold sores, but it can also cause uh, encephalitis, right? It can cause uh, infection uh, of the brain, right? So, I mean, um, uh, uh, chicken pox, right? When you get it, you, you get chickenpox first as a kid, or at least used to before the introduction of the vaccine, you get this itchy rash and all these bumps, uh, and then later on in life, uh, you can end up with shingles, which is just you know because the virus has been hanging out in your neurons, just waiting <laughs> for a time when your immune system uh, or your immune response to the virus is is limited enough that it can reactivate, and then you end up with a stretch of the virus uh, across just a patch uh, uh, in the neuron where it had reactivated. So. Uh, there are all sorts of unusual manifestations for viruses out there. Uh, it's just um, so this is this is one of uh, uh, one in a class of all sorts of unusual. You know, the, the viruses a, as a group can do all sorts of unusual things, and this is just kind of within that group of unusual. Mm, fascinating. A uh, quick last one: Do you do you think we're uh, anywhere near done seeing? Uh, the The symptoms that this virus uh, is likely to cause uh, I, I think that the clinical understanding uh, or the understanding of the clinical manifestations um, uh, continues to to grow, but I think we have a pretty good grasp now uh, of the different of the, the variation and what's common uh, uh, and then perhaps we're, we're now really filling out what's uncommon. Uh, in, in potential presentations, but, but I think we have now a pretty good grasp uh, of um, the, 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 the manifestations uh, of viral infection. That's yeah. good to hear. So to hear. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yep. Yeah.
0: This concludes the May 7th press conference.